Hi, my name is Michael Warren. I'd like to give you some background on one of my best friends. I call him my brother from another mother. Your host, Jed Hughes. Jed climbed up the football coaching ranks working for and alongside seven Hall of Fame coaches, including Chuck Knoll, Bud Grant, Tony Dungy, and Bo Schimbeckler, just to name a few. Now, I met Jed at my alma mater, UCLA, where I was an All-American basketball player and two-time captain for a couple of Coach John Wooden's championship teams. While Jed was a great defensive coordinator at UCLA recruiting a historic class, I was a cast member on the Emmy Honor television series, Hill Street Blues. Jed somehow creatively involved me in his recruiting pitch, and that turned out to be a lot of fun. After a great stint at UCLA, Jed worked in the NFL for the Minnesota Vikings, Pittsburgh Steelers, and the Cleveland Browns. Now, according to Forbes, Jed is the most connected man in sports. Jed holds a master's degree from the University of Stanford and a PhD from the University of Michigan and has led the sports consulting practice for two global executive search firms. Jed ran the process that resulted in the hiring of Pete Carroll, Jim Harbaugh, Andy Reid, Masai Uzuri, and four of the five power conference commissioners, along with many athletic directors and C-suite executives across the industry. I'd like to welcome you to the Jed Hughes podcast. Through this podcast series, Jed will dive into what makes leaders, coaches, and executives great, and what separates the Hall of Famers from the rest. Each episode will feature a unique leader and will delve into the qualities that inspire greatness, galvanize organizations, and teach the next generation of aspiring leaders. Welcome to the Jed Hughes Podcast. Over a career that spans 25 years in Major League Baseball, Mark Shapiro is one of the rare executives in sports that has the opportunity to lead the product, business, and league operations. And I'm pleased to have him as my guest, the president and CEO of the Toronto Blue Jays. Good. All right. Well, let's get it. Welcome, friends. Mark, thanks for joining me. I, I've admired and respected our friendship for a long time. It's mutual. Thank you, Jed. It's great to be with you. Thank you. Your holistic approach to bringing an organization together is really unprecedented. I mean, I admire how you've built organizations. And we're going to get into talking about that. I mean, your commitment to the development, your commitment to the development of all your people, both in baseball and business, is as good as there is in sports. There's a lot coming from you. <laughs> oh, well, look, I, you and I have been through a lot together. You've helped me on a lot of searches in baseball, and uh, you know, we've been confidants to each other. So that's been, that's been fun. How did you get into sports? Uh, how did I get into sports? I think it was part of the fabric of my childhood. You know, that's kind of the easiest way to say it. You know, I grew up uh, first just with a dad that loved the game of baseball. It was kind of part of who he was. And so part of our bond 
And then somewhere in my adolescence, he moved from just a corporate attorney to someone that helped uh, Hall of Famer Brooks Robinson out of bankruptcy. And then that naturally migrated him into being uh, an agent because Brooks recommended that and they went into business together. And so uh, all of a sudden the guys I was cheering for, you know, on the field, hanging over the railing, trying to get their autographs were over my house for dinner. And I was kind of going over their house and I was getting to know them. And I think that took my fandom into an appreciation for what it meant to be a teammate, a professional, you know, why championship teams win, how elite athletes think about the game. Um, and so that, along with playing sports, you know, mostly baseball and football, um, football because my body was conducive to it, and uh, baseball because it was my passion and my heart. Uh, but but those, all those things together kind of led me there, maybe not right out of college, but I think my heart and my head kept taking me to sport. At Princeton, you're playing football. I was, yeah. I mean, um, football was, I think every, every kid and adolescent has to kind of find their path towards confidence, self-confidence, and um, their identity. And football, for me, gave me a set of friends. It gave me a set of values. Um, it gave me really, I think now when I reflect, it gave me character development, as you know, being a former coach, you know, like that ability to understand that football is one of those games where the harder you work, you know, the better results you see. So for a kid to take, uh, you know, a, a pear shaped adolescent kid to be able to reshape his body, uh, to use that size to his advantage. And, uh, and really, I think, you know, I've never been the smartest, most talented at anything I've ever done. Uh, but I think toughness and perseverance and resilience and determination are kind of, that was my tool chest at 17, 18 years old. And that's my tool chest at 53 years old too. <laughs> I just didn't realize that that was gonna kind of be the common link and I probably wasn't aware of it back then. So how do you get into the Indians? How's that happen? Yeah, so I was working uh, in my first job out of college out of Princeton for a big uh, real estate developer in Southern California and an executive training program. Not really happy, um, mostly because of culture, you know, and the leaders, I just didn't buy into the leaders and kind of searching. And I flew out to spring training uh, in Arizona to meet my dad who was doing his tour of the camps out there. And in the process of doing that, I met with a bunch of different front office executives, Jim Beattie, Joe McElvain, and the Cleveland Indians guys, John Hart and Dan O'Dowd. Um, and of course, like any 23 year old, I was like, oh, I want to do that. So uh, I wrote, you know, 26, you know, that was 1991. So I wrote 26 cover letters and resumes, sent them out. Um, crickets got no responses back, you know, for a long time. Had a couple, what I now realize are courtesy interviews. I didn't realize they were courtesy <laughs> interviews back then. Um, and then like six months later, I got a call from Dan O'Dowd with the Cleveland Indians. And the Cleveland Indians were literally just known for the movie major league they had lost 104 games the year before played in the worst stadium in major league baseball cleveland municipal stadium but i flew to cleveland i met with john and dan and those were two guys that had a vision you know they had a plan they had a vision for what they wanted to do um and when i landed back in uh in my home there was a voicemail on my answering machine old school answering machine from john hart uh offering me a role no title pay cut 
you know, entry level cubicle dweller. Um, and I loaded up a U-Haul truck a month later, drove to, uh, drove to Cleveland, moved there on, you know, unknown. And it was the best move I ever made. And really when I reflect back on it and I talk to young people, I, it wasn't sports. It wasn't baseball. Um, it was those two leaders that I bought into their value, their vision, uh, their plan, you know, and they believed in me. They empowered me at a level that was incredible. And so, uh, they're, they're, I will forever be indebted to them and forever appreciative of how the level they empowered me. So you came in and player developed, or at least, so how did that morph? Because that's kind of become a specialty for you as you've worked yes. in organizations. Well, my first year, I came in as kind of a jack of all trades. I was picking up free agents at the airport. I was pulling off reports on the, uh, you know, off the old fax machine game reports. And I was also doing some pretty cool stuff like research on our, the very first arbitration eligible multi-year contracts ever done because we were so small as a front office, literally. Uh, and Dan O'Dowd was both assistant GM and farm director. And after about nine months, Dan turned to me and he said, hey, I know you're doing a lot of really exciting, sexy work now on the major league side, but you need to have a foundation. You need to have a core. Like what is gonna be your core as a baseball executive? And he said, I'm doing too much with the major leagues and player development. I want you to move into player development. And I mean, from the day that I started spending time in the farm system, it was a natural alignment with me of all the things I'm passionate about. Cause it's all about trying to help players be the best they can possibly be. Um, and coaches are a lot like teachers, you know, you're trying to help coaches be the best they can be and create an organization that's built around putting the player at the center where every single person is focused, every single resource is focused on helping players achieve their potential. And so, um, baseball, one of the great things about baseball is the tradition one of the great opportunities about baseball in, in the early 90s was the fact that it was so steeped in tradition, it was resistant to change. But one of the hardest things was I had to go through a lot of people who were resistant to change to in kind of re-envision. In the form Yeah, to kind of, to kind of re-envision how we develop players. A lot of the, the general premise of player development, you know, in the 80s and 90s was, you know, you're going to provide them with uh, an environment to play. You're going to provide them with equipment and resources and when they ask for it, coaching, um, but not a lot of systematic, thoughtful, layered, uh, and holistic, you know, mental, physical uh, areas of their development. It's just going to be baseball development. Uh, and, and naturally, the cream will rise to the top, which does happen, by the way. Like, the best players are going to get there anyway. But my thought was, somewhat from my own experience as an athlete, how much better could we be if we were committed to developing the whole player in person? And how much better could we be if we partnered with the player instead of did the development to the player? Like we made the player accountable for his own development. We included him in the process. We, assured, we ensured that uh, our evaluation matched with his evaluation and we were working together to develop his limitations and, and help him improve. So, um, that evolved, has evolved, but the core premise of that, Jed, is still the same today for me, and so what I believe. You then get different promotion, assistant general manager, general manager, you know, you're winning a lot of uh, divisional championships, you get promoted to CEO. Let's talk a little bit about that journey as you moved up 
John Hart leaves and how you bring people in to develop them because the pipeline of people that you've touched, nobody's done anything like that. So talk a little bit about what that approach has been and how you've included people in, in developing them on the front office side. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, I think the roots of that probably <laughs> lies in the story that we initially talked about, which it lies in the level of belief and empowerment uh, and responsibility that Dan and John instilled upon me at a young age. So I was not even aware, you know, at that age, like how remarkable it was for them to give me that level of responsibility. And I think I only after reflecting was I aware of the power of that belief, like what that can mean when you're someone young and have ideas and thoughts for someone who's been in the game for as long as they have and done as much as they did to say, you're a guy. Like, yeah, like we believe in you, go do it. And we got your back. Um, so I always felt like my job was to pay that forward a little bit. One, two, um, you know, I'm not just saying it in the typical self-deprecating way. Like I'm not that smart and I'm not that talented. So, you know, my strength is gonna be to uh, help identify really good people bring them into a culture that is clearly articulated where the values are clear and then empower the heck out of those people with the understanding that their job's not to pay their dues, their job's to make us better the day they get there. A, it's pretty exciting and fun to work in that environment because there's no energy on credit or no energy on blame. All of our energy is just on how do we get to the best decision? How do we get to the best result? How do we get to the best place together? No focus on individuals, on anyone's individual area. It's just, let's get to the best outcome. Um, and I think all the thought was, hire the best and brightest, make sure the values are aligned, empower the heck out of those people to make us better and create a culture where it's not hierarchical, it's not you know isolated into, you stay in your box, you stay in your little area. It's just about, how do we beat the Yankees and Red Sox with three times our resources? Well, to do that, we better be exceptional in everything else we do. Uh, and to do that, you know, I've, as you and I have talked about a lot, to me, culture is the way to do that. That scalable competitive advantage comes from an elite culture, comes from a learning culture, comes from exceptional people dropped into that environment. Continuous improvement is something else that you've been really uh, passionate about. Talk about how you use that in decision-making, how all those things that you've described are kind of a foundation of that culture. Yeah, so I think, you know, I, I remember talking to Charlie Mara, original sports psychologist in Cleveland, and, you know, back then Kaizen was a big word, which kind of means continuous improvement and getting better. And the more I've thought about it, and the more, again, like I think one of the benefits of kind of you know, having a lot of years or getting older or whatever it is, you know, the ability to reflect is, I think that continuous improvement is really like a set of values. It's the underpinning of a culture. It's what I would now call a learning culture. So, um, and here's, here's the kind of my thoughts behind that. If you're humble, you know, which this game has a way of making you humble, whether you're there or not, as all professional sports do, um, and you're truly open-minded, and if we have everyone open-minded, then you're continuously learning. So if you're humble, open, and learning, you're getting better. You know, you're gonna improve every day. 
And once you start to scale that, not with just one leader, not with five leaders, not with 20 people, if you're scaling that with 200 people across an entire organization, and then you're transferring that to the players as well, that we are constantly focused on learning and getting better. We're open-minded. We're not set in our ways, but we're thinking like, okay, where's the opportunity to get better today? And we're all focused that every single day, there is gonna be some opportunity that presents itself for us to get better in some way, to learn something, to find some way to, that, that individually applies to us to get better. And if we're doing that across an entire organization, you know, then I get back to corporate speak, that's scalable competitive advantage. That is a competitive advantage over people who are only focused on results, are only focused on outcomes, are focused on keeping their jobs, which you, you know all too well, a lot of people just get focused on keeping their jobs. So I'm trying to shift all the attention away from those outcomes, away from those results, away from job security, and just get back to, let's just get better. If we get better, everything else takes care of itself. It'll all, it'll all work out in the end. So hire really well, like we've talked about, really, really, really good people, which is music to your ears, like the best, the best in the world, hire them drop them into a culture that is focused on learning and getting better every single day and empowering, get focused on a common goal and a common set of values and everything else takes care of itself. Just need to keep that going all the time and never get complacent on those things. Now, when you move to the business side and take on the CEO role, how did you get yourself smart on the business side? I know you've used Proctor as a, a, a farming place to yeah. bring people in, in relationship to your own skills how did you shift from just baseball? Because there's only a few people that do this in, in major league sports, as you know. I mean, R.C. Yeah. Buford just moved into this role, and it's yeah. it's not easy. So how did you how did you make the shift and still keep your your thumb on baseball? Well, it, I think it was easy to keep my thumb on baseball for two reasons. I had, at that point I had almost 18 years of doing that, so that's a that's a strong foundation. And it was 18 years in one place, right? So I hadn't moved around a lot so that my roots were so deep on the baseball side in Cleveland that I could disengage and then re-engage seamlessly. That was not hard. So, and the other thing was, and this is something else that we're, we're kind of hitting on, but I haven't talked about expressly. I had, you know, really, really, really incredible people ready to take over the baseball side in Cleveland and Chris Antonetti and Mike Chernoff and Derek Falvey and so many other great people. So, you know, they were ready to, they didn't need me. They were ready to go. So I stepped out and I did a lot of what RC did, which was I did a lot of listening. I did a lot of learning. I did not just want to compare best in class. And, and, and what I was trying to unearth is what is best in class. What's best in class, right? Define that. And what I thought was important, Jed, was to not just define what best in class in sports is. And you and I have talked about this a lot. Like, yes, there are some things sport does better than anybody else, but there are a lot of other things that a lot of other businesses do better than sports because it is really, really hard. The most difficult thing in moving to, in moving to oversee the business side was how do you regress out team performance from business results? It's easy to hide business acumen if a team plays well, you're going to perform well on the business side. That's a fact, right? But there are two pieces to the business side. I always, and as I, as I learned and thought about it, it was a really well-run sports business basically is going to soften the valleys and heighten the peaks. And you're going to have business success regardless of what you do if the team performs well, but you're also going to be able to hide from accountability 
you know, if a team does poorly and just say, hey, the team's doing bad, I can't sell, I can't build brand, I can't, you know, build relationships with our fans. So my, my thought was, we needed to be better than that. We needed to be able to focus long-term on building resilient relationships with our fans that were built on something meaningful. And in the short term, we needed to think about the levers to improve our business, but also just think about, okay, we want to build a business that can handle the down cycles or the down years or the years when something bad happens and is absolutely in position to maximize revenue and to maximize opportunity when we hit our stride and things are good. The uh, Toronto opportunity, you've been in this small market and now in Toronto's in your ear. Um, so somehow you're attracted to that. And the question becomes, it's a big market. Did you understand when you were going there, you know, that the farm system had, de had been depleted, that you had mm -hmm. were overpaying players. So it was going to be kind of a, a reconstruction job. Were you totally aware <laughs> of that going in? So, I mean, you're never aware of everything going in, but, um, I think Toronto, listen, I had had opportunities, other opportunities, as you know, when I was in Cleveland. And every single time I approached them thoughtfully and every single time the value of being with the people I was with and working for the owner I work with outweighed making the move or making the change. At the time Toronto came along, it was kind of a convergence of two things. One, the timing was right in Cleveland because I felt like I had built out a strong leadership team on the business side. Uh, and I knew I had built a strong leadership team in the baseball side. Sure. And so I felt like my role there was to almost be an advisor. I, was, I didn't feel like I was actively leading and running the organization as much as I had at earlier times in my career. So I felt like I wanted that level of engagement again to kind of get back and build something and do something. Toronto came up and, I, and, it, and it attracted to me a multiple, for multiple reasons. One, it's one of the only opportunities in all of sport where because of the corporate ownership, I could actually be the ownership representative within the league, which gave me an opportunity to learn more about the game from the league perspective, to sit on committees that I wouldn't have sat on as a normal CEO or president of a team or GM and help shape kind of the future of the game a little bit, or at least be a voice and, and part of that. So that was attractive because that's growth. That's something beyond what I was doing in Cleveland. Two, um, as I stated, the, the Indians were ready for me to leave, I think. They, they, they didn't act that way, but I felt that way. And then three, the opportunity in Toronto. Um, yeah, I was aware of most of those things. Like I felt like um, it was an organization that was probably ready to be modernized. It was an organization that was ready to have infrastructure built out and resources built that were not in place for whatever reason financially, could have been ownership decisions, could have been philosophical decisions. For whatever reason, uh, it was not necessarily being run in a modern, in a modern you know, way. Um, and I felt there was an opportunity to transform culture. You know? And so all those things are in my wheelhouse. Those are huge, huge undertakings, and they can't be done quickly. Uh, and they require a lot of energy and patience and persistence. And they ultimately, more than anything, require uh, the belief and support of ownership. So I felt like from Edward Rogers uh, and uh, the corporate leaders, the level of empowerment here is exceptional um, and that they bought into the plan that I was articulating and it's, that has played out. 
Um, and so to take on, even with the frustrations that come with taking on, you know, a rebuild or whatever you want to call it, uh, and those frustrations, Jed, largely come from the outside because people never understand in sports. All they understand are the results. They don't understand sure. the process. Uh, but, but those are the things I love to do, you know, so that's, that's largely the reason why. Well, now you're sitting in the division where you've got to beat the uh, Yankees and the Red Sox. <laughs> I know. <laughs> where are you, in terms of your plan, your vision, how, where are you in terms of, in your mind, the pace at which it's been implemented, people have bought into, your, into the culture, you've been able to bring in people, you've been able to upgrade the farm system, you've made some acquisitions in the offseason. So where do, you, where do you put yourself from a competitive perspective today? Yeah, I mean, we're in, a, we're in an incredible strategic spot right now. We have come in, we've built out the, we've built out the culture and the values. We've defined those, a lot of the things that we've already talked about in this call. We've hired a lot of really talented people that fit well into that. We've built out departments that didn't exist. Um, but more importantly, the culture that embraces those departments like analytics, high performance, sports science, uh, nutrition, all the different resources that, you know, had been here either in small in, in a very limited way and weren't necessarily integrated into the day-to-day -day of the organization or just didn't even exist here. So uh, we've built out all those areas on the business side as well. There was no business analytics here. Um, and we've created a vibrant, strong leadership environment uh, and a strong culture. Secondly, we've infused a lot of talent. You know, we've drafted, you know, exceptionally well. Um, and made some good trades. Ross and our baseball operations group have made some incredible trades. Um, and so right now we sit with one of the youngest, most talented cores in Major League Baseball with a strong farm system, very strong farm system. Um, it still will take a lot of strong execution to move from this to a championship team for the reasons you mentioned. We're, we're, in the, we're with the behemoths. You know, we're with the biggest markets in all of baseball and, and we're in the toughest division in all of baseball. So to slay that giant you know, will not be an easy task, but I think we're in as good a strategic position as you can possibly be. And now it's a question of just continuing to nurture that core, continuing to help them understand the importance of their leadership uh, and ensuring they're the best they can be on the field from a performance level. And then it will be a final piece, Jed supplementing, adding players like we did this winter with Ryu, uh, adding players around that core that complement where our gaps are um, and staying focused on getting better and ensure that we, uh, you know, we close that gap. So I, I think we're in a really good spot. I think it's starting to be more visible to our fan base, which is helpful, obviously, because when you're talking about it, and can't show anything, it's hard. But we still have a ways to go. We need to get results, and that's the next step. When you're looking at hitters, whether you're trading for them, looking to draft them, what are the things that are critical that you can't develop that you're looking for in terms of a person that's, that's, that, is, uh, that is a hitter? Well, the hardest thing with hitters, um, there's two things. One, the, the thing that's probably most important to have present, we don't have a great way as an industry to, to identify and, and uh, evaluate. And that's vision, the, probably more the brain vision, the neuro you know, side of the game. There are organizations out there that have tools for that. 
Um, they're imperfect, but there are some that are better than other in those areas. Um, I do think with hitters, though, we have, we have more data and information and track record to go on. Um, it's also uh, interesting with hitters that unlike creating a set of checkpoints that exist for pitchers, uh, it's more challenging with hitters because hitters do it so differently. You know, they, they get in different positions and different spots. Um, it's very hard to replicate what it takes to be a successful hitter because every time you do that, there's someone that's an exception to that that ends up being a really good hitter. Um, I would get back to, though, um, one would be track record and two would be the character, toughness, perseverance, learning focus, growth mindset, you know, looking at all those things, um, those are going to be the guys that adapt, have a long-term focus, are consumed with being the best they can possibly be, are driven to be elite performers. Um, you know, people that just want to make money or just produce or be, you know, applauded, you know, as being, you know, uh, and recognized as being a kind of special. Um, those are the guys that may achieve success, but have a hard time sustaining it. The great performers, and elite performers, I'm sure you feel the same way that you've been around are the guys that are focused on being special and doing something special and are never satisfied. They just want to keep getting better all the time. Pitchers, uh, in terms of the idea of whether you take a pitcher out of high school or college, again, you mentioned this more of a checklist. I remember when we recruited Derek Falvey, he had done some yeah. extensive work with pitching with, with Tito and the Cleveland Indians as, as part of his legacy and foundation of his work with uh, with the Indians. Yeah, Derek, you know, Derek did that all on his own. It was kind of, I always use him as an example when I talk to young people and they ask me like, how do I get in? What do I need to do? And I'm always like, you need to differentiate yourself. You know, you need to show initiative and you need to find a way to make yourself invaluable to a team. And Derek was the guy that did that by dissecting the pitching delivery and taking some work that another group had done and kind of taking it to the next level. Um, I would say this on pitching. In the end, if pitchers, if you can figure out which pitchers have the best chance to stay healthy, staying healthy allows you to throw more. Throwing more allows you to develop your pitches more, you know, have more feedback, throw harder over time. Um, so understanding what it takes both within a delivery uh, and biomechanically and strength and conditioning wise and kinetic chain wise and all those things uh, that will contribute to a player's health with a pitcher are probably more essential and more important than anything else. In today's baseball world, the manager has changed in terms of responsibility and what you look yeah. for and how the front office works in relationship to statistics, analytics, the lineup, pitching changes, and so forth. First, what are you looking for in a manager today? Well, one thing, I've always loved the, the, the title, right, manager, because it's the most appropriate title in all professional sports. You know, like that, I think you still need someone who can manage the clubhouse. Like, that's the most important thing. And that's, that's a leadership attribute, right? Like, Every single time you walk into a clubhouse every day, there's 26 players. There's every, the number of staff down there is growing every single year, right? Like it used to be six, now it's 14. And there's strength coaches and nutritionists, there's chefs, there's trainers, there's physiotherapists, there's, I mean, there's, every, there's a million people down there. 
that manager has to have a feel for that environment. He needs to know every single day there are 10 problems walking through that door. He's got time to deal with two or three. The two or three he picks to deal with are going to make a difference. If he picks the wrong ones, that's an inefficiency, and that's going to undermine that environment and then that team's ability to be successful. So one, I would say managing an environment where we play 162 games in 186 days or whatever, that's an every single day environment. There is no more real world leadership management environment than that. And that hasn't changed. I think that's the same as it was 10, 15, 20 years ago. The ability to manage a culture, manage an environment, know which problems to pick, prioritize, communicate effectively, their own self-awareness, their awareness of others, all the things I believe in leadership, awareness, communication, prioritization. The second piece that has changed is that as we have become more data-driven, informed decision makers, as we have access to so much more information now, so much more, the role between front office and on-field coaching and managers is kind of morphing. The manager needs to be that person that helps lead that, that breaks down the barrier between us and them, that creates that alignment between uniform and non-uniform staff and says, we're in this together. You know, we are driven to be the best we can be. And I want every single resource, whether he's wearing a golf shirt and khakis or whether he's wearing a uniform, to be in this clubhouse helping us figure out how to get better and beat the Yankees. Tito, obviously, Terry Francona, we mentioned, was so far ahead of his time and kind of saying, yeah, like, I don't care. Break down the barriers. Bring the best people in here. Let's figure it out. And when a guy like that who's a Hall of Famer and – you know, is a baseball lifer. Dad was a big leaguer. He was a big leaguer, worked his way up. You know, he lends credibility to that. That has so much power within the Indian organization. Um, and Charlie's doing the same thing here. Charlie Montoya is doing the same thing here. So I think there are still some, you know, old world skills that are still really important. They're just leadership skills, you know, that you and I look for when we think about people in a manager. But I think the open-mindedness, the inclusiveness, the ability to determine, okay, like that's really good information, but our players aren't ready for that. So that's, we need to hold that out. That's really good. Let's take that to our starting pitcher and make sure he has that. And the same thing with helping our coaching staff understand the ability to kind of break down the barriers and make sure everybody's aligned and ensure that we're an inclusive, open-minded culture. The manager has to be the catalyst for that. Everyone's going to look to the manager to see if he's on if he's on board with those things. You have language barriers more in baseball than the other four sports, other three sports. So how do the how does the manager deal with that if they can't if they're not bilingual? Well, I think language is just one manifestation of culture, and we've got massive culture, you know, differences, and some of those are are are. Uh, built upon culture from countries, right? We have Korea, Japan, right. uh, <clears throat> you know, Dominican, Cuban. We've got, you know, how many different cultures in our, I mean, amazing how many cultures we have in our environment. Um, mm. Some of that is uh, built upon um, just places within the United States, you know, rural, Southern, urban, Northern, you know, West Coast, East Coast, 
And an effective coach, an effective manager, an effective organization takes the time to be deeply empathetic and compassionate and will be thoughtful about, okay, what are this player's fears, worries, and doubts? What are his goals, aspirations, and dreams? You know, do I interpret his eye contact, handshake, communication style through my own lens, you know, growing up where I grew up, or do I take the time to understand where he grew up? And elite organizations, elite leaders, um, individualize that, not just for language, but for all culture. You're on the competition. I think Rob put you on the competition committee. How is that? How has that worked as it relates to shaping baseball and having decisions that are sitting right there today? Yeah, I think you know we're you know we're we're tasked with such a, a big challenge because, like I said, baseball uh, has two dynamics that make it a challenge to change. One is the relationship with the players' association and the union. And one is kind of a understanding that it's a traditional game and so steeped in tradition that it's so resistant to any change. That flies in the face uh, with the struggles of the changing entertainment, media, sports landscape, that attention spans in general are just so different, you know, than they were um, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago, um, people don't have to sit in one seat for three hours and watch a game. They can consume the game they want to watch in 20 different places and in a way that, uh, you know, is actually, you know, looks pretty good. Like you and I can remember what standard definition TV looked like. Pretty good incentive not to watch on standard definition TV and to go watch in the stadium. There's not as much incentive anymore when you know, high def on your phone is actually pretty darn good. So uh, we need to create compelling environments. We need to create a game that has a little more pace of action to it. Um, so the competition committee, I think, is about walking that balance of where do we find the high leverage opportunities to, to change and how can we help the game navigate that change in a way that people understand the benefit. Some of that's just testing along the way, finding ways to test ideas, and then recommending the highest leverage opportunities. But, but it has been a challenge yet, not easy. 25 years, I mean, is that the biggest change that you've seen? Which piece? What you've just described in terms of the entertainment, uh, uh, or how, or viewing it. That's a great question. I, I, I don't think so. I think in, in 25 years, the thing that has had the most exponential impact on the game has been the proliferation of data-driven and informed decision-making and analytics. Um, I think that changed, that has changed the way all decisions are made. That has changed the way the game has been played. That has changed the way we develop players. Um, often people think for the worst, you know, I don't know whether it's worse or better. It just is what it is. There's a lot of really smart people making decisions and they're making smarter decisions than they used to make. And you can't take that away. You can't take that out. But what, what you and I were just talking about is more the byproduct, you know, of how do we adapt the game 
when some of the forces of analytics may work against that to the backdrop of just what affects all media, right? Like every, every, every aspect of entertainment is impacted by people's attention spans, technology, the proliferation of alternatives that didn't exist. Um, so yeah, I think that's probably the biggest impact on the business side is the change in the media, entertainment, uh, accessibility, mobility, landscape. The biggest change on the sport and baseball side has been you know, data-driven, informed decision-making and analytics. If we shift to a lot of what's happened in the United States over the last six weeks after the, the murder of George Floyd, and thinking about uh, how you as an organization, uh, how baseball's reacted, how you see players and managers, their responsibility, what are your thoughts surrounding the, the social justice and racial, racial inequalities? It's been uh, definitely a moment of reflection for me. You know, I think looking at always considering myself to be um, progressive, you know, um, shoot, I wouldn't, my family wouldn't have been in the United States if they weren't fleeing religious persecution. They got on a boat with all of their worldly possessions in one chest and rode into Ellis Island because they couldn't live freely in another country. So that, my dad was a civil rights lawyer out of law school and I wrote my senior thesis at Princeton on segregation and housing in Baltimore. So it's been something that has been the backdrop of what I've studied and thought about. Until moving to Canada and maybe seeing race, ethnicity, religion, sexuality through different lens up here with so much more open-mindedness so much of a lack of judgment. Um, that's forced me to reconsider how I grew up in the United States. And then the last six weeks, I think have really forced me to say, have I done enough? Have we done enough? Just being supportive is probably not enough. It's not probably, it is not enough. But the most encouraging thing to me has been the young, the reaction of young people in our organization, you know, and the ownership desire whether it's my kids or whether it's seeing the youngest group in our, in the Blue Jay organization and throughout all of baseball that is saying, this needs to change now. We need to take action now. Um, and we can no longer tolerate, you know, this, this pattern of behavior. Um, really hard to undo history. You know, it is, it is a history, you know, founded in human bondage and slavery. You know, that's a hard thing to deal with hard thing to reconcile. But I think I'm, I'm optimistic by nature and I'm optimistic in the belief that this, these tragedies have happened for a reason and that we have legitimately turned a corner where there is an alignment being led by young people across the USA and North America to ensure that this time, you know, ends up resulting in a more equitable society. With that said, your, old, your former organization is struggling with their name. Yeah. How do, you think, how do you think that's going to play out? I don't know. And that, you know, it's funny when I was there, I spent a lot of time with Chief Wahoo, their logo, and I really struggled with it. It's not, it's not, uh, that, that's public knowledge. You know, one of the first things I did as president of that team was come up with the block C and the alternate uniform so we could build equity and another logo other than the chief. And 
tried to navigate a very slow migration away from Chief Wahoo, and thankfully that logo is no longer a part of the Indians' uh, you know repertoire. The name wasn't something that was a flashpoint at that time. We we talked to Native American leaders, and it wasn't as offensive. But my thought is, if listen, if it's offensive to any group, um, you know, in any way, and is not viewed as a tribute or a positive reflection, then it's something that needs to happen. So, but I'm. I'm focused on the Blue Jays, and that name's not offensive at all. <laughs> I'm not focused on the Indians. I think it, that that'll be up for uh, you know Larry, up for Paul Dolan, and the rest of the organization to sure. figure out. Now, I'm happy the Wahoo's gone. I feel like I played a part of that, you know. Um, and uh, the Indians piece, I never, we didn't really think about when I was there. Again, I really appreciate you taking time to be with us. You represent an extraordinary leader in today's self-serving world. Your compassion and commitment to the development of your people is extraordinary. What we've Thank listened you. to you explain today and what I felt and knew, have known about you through our years is just so evident in our conversation. So I really appreciate our friendship and you taking time to talk with me today. Thank you. Thanks, Jed. I, I appreciate the friendship too. Always learn a ton from you, the window into, you know, who the best leaders are, where the opportunities are to learn and uh, to challenge my own, you know, to challenge my own predisposition. Uh, it's a good reminder that I don't have it figured out, you know, that I'm just, you know, a work in progress too and uh, appreciative of both the friendship and the opportunity to learn from you. So thank you. Wow. Mutual. Enjoy your day. Thanks. All right. Thanks, Jim. Bye-bye.